0: to children's church at this time and invite the rest of us to turn in our bibles to Matthew chapter 22 Matthew chapter 22 this morning Those of you that are visiting, we've been studying the the book of Matthew, and uh, we've been here quite a while. This is the 108th message on Matthew since we started our study, and uh, we've got a few more chapters to go, so uh, I trust that you'll stick with me and uh, uh, stay with us as we study the Gospel according to Matthew. This morning, we want to look at this portion of Scripture that uh, we're going to entitle our message, God and Government. And I believe we come to a fitting passage in our study on this Memorial Day weekend. All around the country, we have people giving tribute to those who have fought for this nation to maintain our freedoms, and while there are those that have given their lives for this nation, there are those who don't appreciate what these armed forces have fought for. And I believe there's great confusion about the role of government and its relationship to the people of God. Every generation seems to wrestle anew with the legitimacy of people of God, endorsing the authority of human government. And whenever we think of God in government... We are reminded, or at least I'm reminded, of the Baptist distinctive of separation of church and state. Now, this is not separation of church and state that most people think about in today's world. For the Baptists, the concept of a free church and a free state rests not on political theory nor on human documents, but upon the Word of God. The Baptist belief in religious Freedom and its corollary, the separation of the institutions of church and state, come from the Baptist commitment to the authority of the Bible. Now what is meant by the terms church and state? Well, the term state, of course, refers to governments. The Bible indicates that governments are ordained by God to provide law and order. Government leaders are to act for the benefit of the citizens. And Baptists and other Christians are to honor and pray for government officials, were to pay our taxes, were to obey the government, except when obedience would clearly be contrary to God's will. And historically, Baptists have affirmed their loyalty to the state. The term church refers to religious organizations. For Baptists, this means the local congregation and even perhaps a Some additional entities established for religious purposes, such as our associations and conventions and schools and institutions for ministry. But Baptists teach that the nature of church is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach doctrine, to develop believers, and to minister in Christ's name. And the church is to rely on the sword of the Spirit, not the sword of the government in carrying out its mission. Ideally, the relation of church and state is mutually beneficial. For example, the state is to provide order and safety. And these are useful to the church in carrying out its mission. And the church contributes to a positive social order by helping develop law-abiding, hard-working, honest citizens. We as Baptists contend that this mutual benefit works best when the institutions of the church and state are separate and when neither seeks to control the other. The state is not to dictate our doctrine, our worship style, our organization, our membership or or personnel for leadership. The church is not to seek the power or financial support of the state for spiritual ends. And that is the model that is given to us in the New Testament. And the very nature of the gospel and of the church calls for such a relationship. The Bible reveals that humans are created by God with a a competency to know and follow His will. Following God's will should be a free choice, not coerced by either a church or a state. Salvation in Christ is the result of free choice to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so neither church nor state should ever interfere with the free proclamation of the gospel or with the freedom of people to accept it or to reject it. And likewise, churches ought to be composed of people who have freely chosen to be baptized, to assemble. People should support the churches by voluntary contributions with the tithes and the offerings. And only Jesus is to be Lord neither any government or ecclesiastical organization. And so we come to our text here in Matthew 22, and our focus is on the question, does government take precedence over the rule of God in a citizen's life, even when the government is not squeaky clean in its re- religious understanding? And this is similar to the question that the Pharisees framed while attempting to trap Jesus. But the problem with such a question is that it necessarily puts God and government in conflict. In such thinking, at the roots of human existence, the secular and the sacred must not meet. Yet Jesus responds, Jesus responds and he demonstrates that this is a false contract. A false contrast. We often... Here the idea that, as far as a Christian, there's nothing that's secular. everything should be sacred. The Lord rules over all, and within the sphere of His reign, He establishes the governments. and therefore being a part of the Messiah's kingdom does not nullify responsibilities to earthly authorities. And so in a sense, we hold a due, dual citizenship. And we're to exercise faithfully and simultaneously uh, in those two areas. Jesus did not see this as a quandary, but the responsibility of our of kingdom citizens. So how do we view the place of government in God's economy? Number one, we notice here a grand illusion. A grand illusion. We've already observed how Jesus uh, explained in a series of three parables that the kingdom was did not belong to the proud religious leaders who had rejected God's authority in His Son. The kingdom had has been taken away from them and given to the people producing the fruit of it. That is, people showing evidence of their lives of uh, being transformed through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the religious leaders, they try three attempts. They have three shots, so to speak, uh, uh, to... Uh, craftily undermine Jesus in order to sublant his popularity with the masses or to put him at odds with the Roman government. But what they sought to do was just a grand illusion on the part of scheming men. God was accomplishing his purposes through his Son and would be pleased to use even the craftiness of these wicked men to fulfill eternal purposes through the Messiah. Peter understood this, and he declared it on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, he said, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And so as we look at this grand illusion, we notice, first of all, a foolish plot. Matthew introduces to us the characters involved in this foolish plot to undermine the Son of God. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Mere men thinking they know more than the omniscient God. And they scheme together to subvert what God established from the foundation of the world. Don't we sometimes fall into despair? Because what we think God has going among men, is being supplanted by the wicked organizations and by godless governments. You know, when the communists defeated the civil government of China in the late 1930s, all the missionaries were driven out of the country. And by best estimates, only five million Christians could be found in the largest nation on the earth. Christians all over the world mourned about what took place, and they were worried about Uh, about uh, a China without missionaries, and how that China would be plunged into atheism because of its communist rulers. But you do realize that no country in the world today has as many Christians as China. I read an article not too long ago. China has become the new Christian nation. Even though the iron-fisted rulers of China have sought to suppress Christianity, even to stamp it out, Christianity is continuing to grow by leaps and bounds, even in the face of persecution and martyrdom. And so who were these plotters here in Matthew 22 who foolishly tried to trick the Son of God? You see there in verse 15 it says, Then went the Pharisees and took Counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. These wily Pharisees devised a clever plan. They thought that they surely catch Jesus off guard. They could snare him in his own words. And they're not new to Matthew's gospel here. These conservative Jewish leaders made up the experts of in the law, both scribes and statesmen of for the law of Moses, and some were members of the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy, leading religious, legal, and economic men in Israel. And they exercised both civil and religious jurisdiction under the guidance of the Roman governor. Rome had given them enough rope to conduct the daily affairs of Israel to placate the Jewish desire for independence. And the Pharisees, along with their priestly counterparts, the Sadducees, led the way. But the Pharisees, with their distinctive flowing robes and headdresses, were easy to spot. Jesus could not be fooled by their questions since He understood their opposition. Verse 16 says, And they sent out unto Him their disciples with the Herodians. The disciples were likely students of the Pharisees. They were schooled in the law. They were fortified with the determination not to lose their grip on the masses in Israel. And joining them were the most unlikely group in Israel, the Herodians. And while we don't know too much about them, their name identifies their loyalty. Rather than being fiercely loyal to the religious authority as the Pharisees and their disciples, the Herodians paid their loyalty to the family of Herod, and they hoped would eventually be able to rule Israel as a free nation. And the Pharisees and the Herodians were kind of strange partners, united by their shared hatred of Jesus Christ and His claim to be the Messiah. The Pharisees feared that Jesus would upstage their prominence in Israel, while the Herodians feared that He would undermine the rule of Herod. And they work together to undermine Jesus in the eyes of the people and the government. Notice, secondly, the truthful flattery. You know, flattery is often used to try and break down some barriers in our lives. In this case, the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians tried to flatter Jesus so that He might not be on guard against their questions. And they figured that with Him, softened by their overly kind words, he would be apt to blurt out some unguarded comment by which they could accuse him of treason to Rome or disloyalty to Israel. Either way, they would snare him. Let's be beware of the flatterer. Satan is never so dangerous as when he appears as the angel of light. The world is never so dangerous to the Christian as when it smiles. And Judas, when Judas betrayed his Lord... Remember, it was with a kiss. Ironically, what they said about Jesus was true. Often, flattery twists truth in favor of the buttering up of the person. But what they said, even though they didn't believe it, was true. They said, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. They acknowledged the absolute integrity of our Lord. They said, we know that thou art true. In other words, you are truthful. They affirmed both his understanding of God's ways and his ability to communicate them without compromise. He says, you teach the way of God in truth. And Jesus' concern was never to flatter his listeners or to, get favor from the leaders in Israel but they said you regard not person of men and finally they used a phrase that implies that Christ did not look at his audience to determine whether or not he would speak truth we might say he did not check to see which way the wind of political correctness was blowing he didn't check the polls to see which way they were leaning He said, they were saying, you're not partial to any. You know what? I think we can agree with that. So far, we agree with everything they had to say. Jesus was not tricked by their flattery. So there is an apparent quandary. Now the question came, setting forth what appeared to be a quandary for Jesus. Verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? In other words, since you're always truthful and you're consumed with teaching God's way rather than the appeals of men, please tell us what you think about this question. And they gave the appearance of being curious students, desiring to hear the words from their master teacher. Now, that may not be a difficult question for us. You know, As a former teacher, having taught school for 16 years, and I remember my students would often ask me if they had to do something. Do we have to do this? Is this something we're required to do? I like the answer of one teacher who was asked that question, and they simply would reply, Honey, there's only two things you have to do. That's die and pay taxes. Now that gives us an idea that no option exists when it came to paying taxes. But the tax mentioned here is tribute. That's the word we find in our, in our Bibles here, tribute. It relates to the census that was most hated tax of all in Israel. Now there were taxes on property and there were uh, taxes on the produce and the wine, but this one was what they might, you might call a head tax. In other words, all the males over 14 and all the females over 12, the age of 12, had to pay this head tax until they were 65 years old, which few made it to that age in that day. It was the same tax levied by Caesar Augustus when God's providence brought Joseph with his pregnant wife Mary to Bethlehem to pay the family Head tax. The Anti Federalists debating the proposed U.S. Constitution in 1787 didn't like a census tax any more than the Pharisees. They declared the tax is so congenial to the nature of despotism that it has ever been a that it has ever been a favorite under such governments. And someone else explained that paying the head tax to the Roman authorities was the most immediate and humiliating recognition of subjection to the heathen. And that's why the Pharisees despised it, and the Herodians who were loyal to Rome favored it. Now another issue that distressed the Pharisees and many of the Jews was how the tax had to be paid. When Jesus called for the particular coin used for this tax, it was not the customary copper money minted by Herod, but it was and that was used throughout Palestine. Instead it was a silver coin stamped with the image of Caesar and an inscription proclaiming to be him to be Tiberius Caesar Augustus, that is, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. And it legitimized Caesar as both the political and religious ruler over, the Roman Empire. And for that reason, the Pharisees objected to it, and they despised it. To support it implied loyalty to Rome, treason to Israel. But to refuse to pay the tax implied anarchy against Rome. So Jesus has a quandary here. How is he going to answer this question? And so that brings us to a wise response. A wise response. We do not see our Lord flinching at this question, discerning exactly what is happening. He not only pulls back the curtain on their hypocrisy, but He also established the firm principle for our relationship to government and the nature of it under God's authority. First of all, He exposes the heart. Verse 18, He exposes the heart. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? He knew exactly what they were intending. If he called the tax legal, the masses of Israel that had found Christ to be so intriguing would reject him. They resented this tax and anyone who supported it. And if he called it illegitimate, then the Herodians who were fiercely loyal to Rome's delegates would report his treasonous comments and have him arrested. Either way, they had him. Or so they thought. As it turned out, Jesus had them because He was exposing their hypocrisy. They were not interested in knowledge and truth, but only in snaring Him. But His response not only exposes the heart, it challenges the proposition. He calls for the silver coin used in the tax. Verse 19, Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto Him a penny. A penny or a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage for a soldier or a working person. In our currency, it would be worth only a few pennies, and yet it was enough to sustain a family for one day. Now Jesus asked his flatterers a question that they immediately knew the answer to. Look at it there in verse 20 through 21. Verse 20 through 21. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and subscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Now, the first term referred to the image of Caesar, which the Jews would have considered offensive, because the Bible says, or the law said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet, in their thinking, since Caesar claimed deity, to acknowledge him by even carrying a denarius would break this commandment. And that probably why they took for one of, the coin, one of these coins, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. It was even clearer in the Jewish mind. Because Caesar's image was clearly marked on the coin. And so to use it would be dependent upon it for paying the tax, and that would be just like idolatry. So in their minds, paying the tax broke the first and the second commandment. So they hated the thought of it. Yet Jesus also asked about the inscription on the coin. That referred to the attributes given to Caesar as son of the divine, Augustus, and high priest. Roman citizens had no qualms about the political and religious figure of Caesar, even though most of them would have worshipped other gods. But not the Jew who worshiped God alone. And though the Pharisees hoped to pose Jesus as a Roman loyalist, they gave the tax, they too gave the tax with Caesar's image stamped on it. Now, what do we notice here? Jesus did not lead a revolt against carrying a denarius or a penny or using it for specific purposes in the Roman Empire. His opponents had neatly packaged two major issues in life God. And the government. And they boiled them down to simplistic choices. The Herodians could understand government, but not God. In their blindness, the Herodians failed to understand God's sovereign rule being exercised in the Roman Empire. The Pharisees would understand God, but not government. They were just as blind as Herodians, thinking that without divine theocracy, all would be lost. Neither could grasp that proper conduct of citizenship is not contrary to God, but an expression of His sovereign purpose to be carried out through the governments that He has established for His purposes. They wanted to keep the government of man and the government of God completely uh, opposed to one another. But Jesus demonstrates how government is not the enemy, but a valuable tool under God's authority. And the believer is not called upon to choose one or the other, but to recognize both the governments, both the church and the government, and their place in life. One affecting only the temporal realm, and the other affecting both temporal and eternal. Now, this brings us to an established principle a principle that our Lord has declared. He says in verse 21, the second part of verse 21, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and under God the things that are God's. God has ordained the existence of civil government. This principle brought the theogra- theocratic government that the Jews considered legitimate to an end. It also established the responsibility that men have to God that actually transcends government, something that the Herodians could not comprehend. And by the way, there's many people that can't comprehend that today either, can they? Both God's rule and civil rule have a place in human, our human economy. But Jesus calls this a responsibility. You'll notice the question first asked of him, the phrase, give tribute unto Caesar. But the verb... Given here is a command in Christ's reply. He says, render therefore unto Caesar and unto God. The first idea is the idea of a gift, as though the tax that Caesar demanded amounted to a gift to Caesar. Jesus said it was not a gift, but a giving back to Caesar for the obligations of government for its citizens, as well as giving back to God what is given to men. So what is government's obligation to its people? The framers of our own Constitution in 1787 offered a good picture of this in the preamble. The government has a responsibility to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Each of us can find flaws in our government, right? Our government's not perfect. That is never difficult because many people in our government lead places of leadership are not saved and man's depravity shows through even the best of intentions. But in spite of this, We have been greatly blessed with a government that is committed to establish a system of justice for its citizens and to promote law and order for the domestic tranquility throughout the country. Government also has the responsibility to defend the country from tyranny, from terrorism, from invasion, or any other attack by nations or oppressors. And that's why this is so significant on this memorial day weekend. Our government must labor to ensure a good infrastructure that allows for growth and development, communication and travel, and all that is necessary for commerce and business to thrive. And knowing the human tendency to self-tyranny, government must be constantly vigilant to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And so when we're called upon to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to pay our taxes, to exercise our right to vote, to support our government and military, to peaceably express our disagreements within the rights of its citizens, to maintain loyalty to our nation. We're only doing what Jesus commanded us to do. And we're fortunate to have a government that gives us freedom of religion, freedom of speech. But remember, when our Lord set forth this command, it was given during a time when the Roman Empire, where non-Romans, which included the typical Jew, had very limited freedoms. And yet even they benefited from the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Because Rome established a strong military. They had superbly designed roads for that day. And they even had an infrastructure that allowed for commerce. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, it's okay to be a good citizen of Rome. And it's a good thing to be a good citizen of the United States of America. There's no conflict in following the Lord and being a good citizen. Now the second Clause says, render unto God the things that are God's. What, was the Lord God, what has the Lord God provided you this morning? Your life and your breath that you breathe is due to God. The fact that you are distinctly different from animals in that you are a moral creature with an eternal soul comes from God. And as moral creatures, God has given you and me a conscience to direct us and His law to clearly fix moral requirements for all of us. God has given us the ability to think, to reason, and to communicate. He has set eternity within our heart so that while this world passes away, you're fitted for existence beyond this life. James sums it up in James 1.17, every good gift. And every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So in light of this, I wonder this morning, are you rendering to God the things that are God's? Now you can give your government your taxes, you can vote in elections, and you can generally support the state. But how do you render to God the things that fit only under His divine rule? Well, notice four things as we bring this to a close. We must acknowledge Him as sovereign over the universe. Nothing exists apart from His pleasure. Number two, we must seek to please Him and honor Him and worship Him as He has commanded to be honored and worshiped. And then number three, since we are all deficient in this regard due to our sin, we must see how God has provided for us to please Him. And that comes only through turning from our sin, believing in His Son as our Lord and Savior. In this, we recognize the divine government or rule continues for eternity and that everything we do in this life is to be done wholly unto the Lord. Whether eating or drinking, word or deed, we're to do all to the glory of God. And then number four, that means the way we use our gifts and our resources, our time and our abilities, at home, in our relationships, at work, at school, in society. All is to be done to the glory of God. But there's one more point here, because that's verse 22. There's a hearing, but not obeying. You know, after hearing this, you would think that Christ's audience there would have thrown down their weapons of rebellion and cast themselves at His feet and made Him the Lord of all. But that did not happen due to the hardness of their hearts. What a dangerous position to be in. Verse 22, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left Him and went their way. You notice those last four words, and went their way. That was the Pharisees and the Herodians' response. But what about you this morning? Do you render what is due to the government that God has ordained for this country? And even more so, do you render to God what He requires of you? We may easily see our horizontal responsibilities because we face them all the time. But Jesus also challenges us here in a vertical relationship, realizing that as strong and effective as this government is, the day will come when it will pass away as many others have before. The divine government, God's kingdom, lasts forever. And we must render to God the things that are God's through Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning as we